Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. You know, we've uh, covered a number of episodes about depositions already. Today's episode is deposing their expert, the opponent's expert. The one word that comes to mind when you say, you know, deposing their expert, the other side's expert, the one word that comes to mind for me is opportunity. As often as an expert says something to hurt you, they say something to help you. Tim, what do you think? Make your case with your expert, win your case with theirs, right? Yeah. Going in, you got to figure out what your plan is. I always look for admissions, eliminating elements of the case. Also, a lot of times the expert will be there to testify about one particular issue in, in the case. That doesn't mean you can't ask them about other things. And a lot of times they're not prepared for that. For example, I took a defense expert yesterday and the defendant defense counsel brought the guy in to criticize a third party defendant they had sued. And the nature of the criticisms he was making of them necessarily meant he was going to have to accept the merits of my case. So he came in to criticize a third party defendant. And I just kept saying, why do you think they had to do that? And it ultimately came back to because the product is defective. And so <laughs> I don't think there was a lot of thought that went into getting that guy. This has happened to me more than once where in a product liability case, the witness was well prepared for negligence, reasonable conduct, but not for strict liability. More than a couple times, I've had the other side's expert admit verbatim all of the elements that I needed for a strict liability case. You know, when you uh, first get expert reports from the opposing attorney, they often look ominous. You know, they, they look like brick walls, like this person is going to say that and that, and it's going to hurt my case. It seems like this is a great chance to sit down and probe that report and test it and look at those words more carefully and circle words and do your own research, talk to your own experts and pick away. But I, I find that it's one of those things where it often will pay off to do that hard work, but it's not obvious when you first see that report. Well, we all know oftentimes that expert didn't write the whole report. Or any of it. <laughs> or any of it. <laughs> The lawyers are writing I was, I was telling Tim the other day, true story, I had a carbon monoxide poisoning case involving a pool heater. And the other side was scrambling. The, the liability was bad for them. They were scrambling to get an expert. And they found somebody. Actually, I don't even think it was the last minute. They got ex extra time, which I agreed to. And one of the first questions I asked was whether this individual had done this before. And the answer was no. He was brand new. My eyes lit up. I just I approached the deposition completely in a different manner. It's the first time he'd ever done this. And I made it very conversational and sort of befriended him, going back and forth, asking him what he thought about this and that, not being aggressive at all. And at one point when we got to his report, I asked him if there were prior versions of the report. And he immediately said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, you know, when was it changed this morning? And, you know, who was involved in changing it? It was the other attorney. And I said, where are the prior reports? And he said, in the trash can. Yeah. <laughs> so well, in federal court, you're not allowed to ask that stuff. But in state court, you can. But also in state court, there usually isn't report. Well, in, not in Missouri. And so that gets into one of our first main topics, do your homework, which includes finding out whether the expert is experienced or not. If not, you can do what you just said. If so, you better do your homework and go get prior reports, prior depot transcripts where they might have talked about the same type of thing and said 
the opposite of what they're trying to say in your case. Prior trial testimony, articles they've written, articles they've cited. Look at the CV closely. There's a lot of things on the CV, especially publications, presentations. Think of the cases we've had, Tim, where as far as showing bias, some of the presentations. Good you know, PowerPoints. How, yeah, PowerPoints. They've testified before a group of defense lawyers on you know, how to defeat malpractice claims, how yeah. to testify as an expert, things like that. We do those opioid cases, and a lot of times I find out that the defense expert has given a presentation about our first opioid case, Kuhn, and how doctors are negligent if they do the same thing that the conduct is about in our current case. There is so much stuff available to us nowadays with everything online. There's just no excuse to have everything that's out there. You'll get videos in the presentations of some of the experts. Yeah, look them up on YouTube. Utilize bar association groups like MATA or AAJ and... You'll find a lot of times lawyers are more than happy and willing to share stuff they've gotten on experts because then they know you'll do the same for them. And you can find presentations experts have given, like life care planners who've given presentations at seminars for defense lawyers on attacking the plaintiff's life care plan. There's gold out there if somebody's been doing this kind of thing long enough. The other thing, too, is with experts, unlike a lot of other witnesses, they come with a file and it's extensive. A lot of times it's all the documents that have been produced in the case. Tim, what do you do to make sure you've got the file in far enough in advance so that you can actually prepare for the deposition? I start that discussion before my experts get deposed because they want our experts' file ahead of time as they can. And so I usually reach an agreement before my experts' depot that I'll provide the file one or two days before if they agree to do the same. Now, I've gotten burned where I've done it and then they got the benefit of it. And then we get to their experts and they just don't do it. But I, I guess you think you go to the court then and refuse to start the depot. But most of the time, I find attorneys are willing to make that agreement and honor it. I've had situations where there was no question it was deliberate. We get dumped on us the morning of the deposition, you know, 40,000, 4,000, whatever pages of documents. And in those documents are what we've been asking for for the last 12 months. When that happens, what do you guys do, Eric, Tim? Well, I make a record of it. And then either I'll try to slog through but make clear I'm reserving the right to come back if I feel like I wasn't able to figure out and get through it during the depot or postpone it so I have time to read it or delay the depot. But there's never an agreement to delay the depot. And so then you run the risk of going to the court. And if your judge doesn't see it your way not letting you take the depot. So I usually make a record that I'm going to do my best in the depot to review it. I will take at least some break to try to go through this stuff. But sometimes, like you said, it's a million documents. Like you literally can't. I think the only thing you can do is put that on the record and say, I cannot proceed with this deposition today. Yeah. Or what you can do is cover what you can and then reserve your right on the record on to that. go back right on anything that you find in the documents. That's one way to do it. And I think that's probably the right. A court will appreciate that. You did what you could do, but you were unfairly prejudiced just in with respect to the thing that wasn't produced till the last minute. Yeah, I think it, it depends upon how much material, of course. But if it's a thousand pages and you're trying to take the deposition while flipping through a, a file, that just seems so dangerous not to do the two things that Tim just mentioned to preserve your rights. The few times that's happened to me, either in the depot or at trial or an arbitration, where they pull out some article 
or something that the expert says they're relying on and they didn't give it to me till the expert starts testifying, I usually find there's a reason for it, not just because they're trying to prejudice me, but there's something terrible in it for them and they're hoping I don't have time to find it. And I've usually in those situations found something like in the article that blows their whole case up. And if you can have time to do that on the spot, it ends up being more effective. I think there are two general categories that you need to cover with every expert witness. And one is bias and the other is credibility. And they're different. Let's first talk about bias. I think a good way to put bias is tending to favor one side over the other. What are some good examples, Eric and Tim, about bias? I'll tell you one yesterday, same depot I was just talking about, discovered in the depot that this expert had been represented by the defense lawyer personally in a case that he got sued in. That's about as much bias. you. Oh, and their friends and golf with each other on the weekends and have each other's cell phone numbers in their cell phone contacts. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good evidence <laughs> yeah. of uh, tending to favor one side over the other. <laughs> right. Because that, that might do it. But usually what you're talking about, right, is money. How much money they made in this case, how much money they've, they make per year, how many depots they give per year, how much may they've made in their career from litigation consulting. Plus right? the repeat players phenomenon where it's the same yeah. firm hiring the same expert over and over, which is another version of that. Right. How many times has this lawyer hired you? Right. Prior relationship with the defendant, prior relationship with counsel. The other thing that's one of the classics is you'll get somebody who's testified three or 400 times and they've never testified for a plaintiff in their career or maybe one time where there was some third party defendant and they're bragging about it. And it works both ways. There's experts who've never testified for a defendant. There's one expert that I've used many times in cases. He's a fire cause and origin expert. I don't think he's ever been retained or testified in a case on behalf of a defendant. And he explained it really well. It's a, it was an automotive product case. He was on the stand when they were asked, and he had a great explanation. And that was, he said, you know, these cases are hard fought, and it's a small community. And once you pick a side, sort of, once you testify against a car company, other car companies really aren't going to hire you. They sort of blackball you. And he said, it's a political thing. And somebody wanted to send me a case, I'd be happy to look at it. But that's just the way it goes. So I thought he handled that well. You might have an expert that testifies only for plaintiffs, and they have an expert that testifies only for defendants. This came to mind when I listened to Amy Gunn talking on her podcast, Heels in the Court. And she says, sometimes you just have to drop that attack, even though it's good because your own expert's in the same position. Well, on the plaintiff's side, we have an ability to spin that and say, I mean, which one is more credible? The one who is willing to criticize other members of his profession or the one who never will? Right. Speaking of never, I, I ask questions like you were just saying, have you ever testified against a physician in a case, you know, in a medical malpractice case. And another question to ask in med mal cases is, have you been sued for malpractice? And a lot of times, if they have, they'll get really heated about it and start getting upset about it, which shows very clearly, oh, you have a bias against the existence of medical malpractice cases. One of the things, too, I remember a case where the expert had testified for plaintiffs and he had testified for defendants, and it was a medical malpractice case. And I narrowed it a little bit and said, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever testified against another doctor in your community, in your right. city? And he said, well, no. Well, why? Most of them will come right, right out right. and, and say, say, I would never do would that. Would never do that. No matter and what. No matter what. 
And then you get to have a little conversation with them about, well, do you think that's fair? Do you think yeah. that's being honest? Experts uh, right? we use on causation issues in non-med mal cases have admitted on the stand when a defendant hired him in a med mal case and said, no, I would never testify for a plaintiff in a med mal case that's in the St. Louis area. I just wouldn't do it. You know, at, the, at least he's honest about it. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the other big item for bias is money. What people are paid, what experts are paid. Again, you got to be careful with that. If you have experts who you're paying a lot of money to and you've seen them, they've worked with you many, many times, you got to be careful what you, you might do. might not want to highlight it. Right. You, you, exactly. You don't want to highlight it <laughs> right. and set yourself up. But I mean, some of these guys, it's just crazy. I've had cases millions where, yeah, millions of dollars a year and that's all they're doing. It's unbelievable. So I usually start small and then build out. You know, what are your rates in this case? How much work have you done of each type? Discussions with counsel, reviewing materials, and then get to how much they've earned in this case to date, how much you know charge if we get to trial, and then expand it out to, you know, is this personal income or do you bill it through your company? How many depots do you give a year? How many reports have you written a year? So how much income per year on average do you make? Okay, how many years have you been doing it? And then you end up multiplying that out and getting a huge number. I had a case I tried last August, and one of the defense experts, we noticed that he had charged $40,000. And it was a case where there were other experts who had charged that much, but this particular expert wasn't giving anything to really review. He was a radiologist, and he had a very narrow focus in the case. Probably just looked at the films. Right, and so that was it. He basically looked at the films. There were thousands of pages of medical records, which he wasn't provided. He was provided, I think, one deposition. That's what radiologists do. I mean, that is the right thing to do, is just look at the film without any bias. But this guy had billed $40,000 in the case, and I I spent 15 (laughs) minutes. That was all right. That was all I talked about. I said, please tell me how you man, and his rate, I think, was $400 an hour 350 an hour. We figured out the hours. Now, what did you do? I think he was a terrible witness, mostly because of that. He lost all credibility, I thought, very early on in his cross-examination. So when do you cover bias, John? Because I mix it up based on what I know about the expert and what I think I can accomplish with the expert. If yeah. I think I can get a bunch of admissions, I do all the bias stuff. Yes. Last. I'd rather get an admission and eliminate issues in my case. And you just, you got to see what they're willing to give you. If it's somebody who testifies for a living and they've given 200 depots before and you've seen them, you don't even really need to get into the bias. You already know about it, but you're exactly right. That's an important point. Sometimes I do it right away because I want the person to get mad and get on edge. Yeah, but but I think a lot of times you're going to get them mad and get them on edge. And so (laughs) if you're thinking that somebody's going to be a little bit more honest and straightforward with you. Then I do it last. Right. Yeah. And I do the same thing. I will hold it until later in the deposition. And a lot of the witnesses that I see, we've seen them again and again, And it's not even necessary to do that. You kind of go in and and ask them, you know, get right to the opinions. So the other thing is credibility. There's some overlap between bias and credibility. If somebody's being paid $50,000 to give an opinion in a case or spends 90% of his time working in litigation, it affects the perception of bias, no question, but it also affects credibility. So part of credibility is what did they give him and not give him to have a foundation for the opinion. Right. And I think that's the difference. Credibility is, can they really say what they're saying? Do they know what they're talking about? Do they have the background training? One of the important things is you got to really look for the file. You've got to identify in every expert's deposition. I always make it a point to take my time and identify every single piece of information that is or was ever in their file. 
especially what they've been provided. And you will always find that. And I don't some... just say what's there. I go through categories of stuff that should be there because they may, right. you may right. find out. Yes. Depositions, records, documents from the defendant. The depot yesterday, I keep talking about it, but all this great stuff happened. He specifically was not given the defendant's corporate rep depot where they made admissions that were devastating to this guy's ability to give opinions. Like contrary to that. I, I see that all the time, and I don't know how that's going to help anybody. No. I don't know why any lawyer would intentionally withhold something important like that and then put their expert out for a deposition. Yeah. It's just asking for the expert to get killed. It's a self-inflicted wound. Yeah. So does it cut one way or the other when an opposing expert comes in and only knows the thing that's in front of them. They don't know anything about the case, like that radiologist we just mentioned, or maybe an engineer. It depends on the type of expert. If it's a med mal case, Eric, you know, it depends on the type of doctor. They may not need to see all the records in the case. They may just need to see the films and the radiology records. If it's a neurologist, the records that are relevant to that. But if it's a product case and it's a defense liability expert engineer, they better have been given everything in the case, all of the depots, all of the records, all the defendants testing. So I think it depends on the case and the type of expert. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is don't just ask what they've been provided, but ask if they've read it. Yeah. A lot of them will say, ah, I just breezed through it or I didn't really look at it or I didn't read it. And I start with, tell me all the work you've done on the case and then everything you got, what was sent, what wasn't right. sent. Did you read it? Did you make highlights on the depots? Did you make notes based on what was in the depots? Did you read the documents? Did you see this from the depot or documents? And if they don't know, you've gleaned that they didn't read it. I find that the question, did you read it? It's an easy yes. It's probably more effective sometimes just to ask them about a basic question. Just say, what's your understanding about X, Y, and Z? And if they don't know it, then you can point it out in the record. And now you just prove that they didn't read it or they didn't remember it when they made their opinions. The case I was just talking about in trial a few months ago, that's what I did. He was provided with a few depots to look at in the case. And I just gave a name and said, who is that? Yeah. <laughs> One of the main things, if nothing else in an expert depot, you better make sure you know that guy's entire file contents. Because there may be something in it, some article or something. And if you don't go through and identify the entire file contents, what you're going to find out at trial is the guy has an opinion based on some peer-reviewed article that blows up your case that you didn't know about because you didn't ask the right questions in the depot. So you or, <laughs> or the flip side, you find an article that is extremely helpful yeah. that they reviewed and it's in the file or better, the defense attorney handed it to them. Like one of the last cases we tried together, our expert, who was a great expert, didn't have any literature because all the literature on the subject had stuff good for us and bad for us. And they brought experts in with 20 articles that then you meticulously went through and our entire case became about admissions in their experts' articles. Yeah, and I will tell you, when you bring an article to a case, that's one thing. When you're using an article that one of the defense experts has produced or has in their file, that's a whole different ballgame, especially peer-reviewed articles. Look at the footnotes. And with one of the witnesses, they had an article and it was right on point. It was a causation issue that we had in the case. And there were 80, 90 footnotes of different hospitals that had participated in this study. It was an article that was summarizing the results of a study. And I was able to go through the footnotes and every prominent hospital and medical center in Johns the country. Hopkins, Mass Johns General. Hopkins, right. And they were all in there supporting the conclusion in the article that we wanted to argue. And so we ended up adding 
teams of experts from some of the best medical institutions in the country, and we're able to really hammer them with that. And a lot of times, too, you're battling with these experts in a substantive area that you're never really going to understand nearly as well as they do. And a lot of times, that's where the battle is. Jurors can understand uh, getting paid a whole lot of money to give opinions for the same law firm or the same defendant all the time. They can understand if there's a very important deposition in the case and the other attorney or the attorney doesn't even provide it to their expert, jurors can understand that. So anyway, credibility, we're talking about bias, credibility. And just to kind of summarize that, find out everything that's the basis of their opinion. All facts relied on any facts they were asked to assume, things they weren't given, materials not reviewed, anything they asked for that they weren't given. And then lack of qualifications, lack of expertise, prior inconsistent statements in other cases, flying in the face of common sense, all those things go to credibility. One of the other things, too, opinions. These experts are giving opinions. That's a wonderful opportunity because you get to ask them to assume certain facts, facts that are in the case, and see what they think, get their opinions. But the other thing, too is it's a great opportunity to try to get some of their opinions excluded. It's something else I mix up. Sometimes I come in, if it's somebody who isn't an experienced testifier, I'll ask their name, and my next question is, what are all your opinions? And they'll be taken aback and, like, forget stuff that they had. They were coached to come in and say. The other thing, too, is a lot of times you can get experts to admit that they're not qualified in certain areas. Yeah. And they will. If you say, well, you know, you're not qualified on this or you're not qualified. One of the things that I do, in addition to establishing what their opinions are, defining what areas they're not going to testify about. You agree experts shouldn't testify outside their area of expertise. And you're not a mental health expert, so you're not going to be talking about You know, that aspect of damages whatsoever, you would have to defer that and exclude everything they can't say before you get into what they are trying to say. Most of the time, we know 90% of what that expert's going to say before well in advance of the deposition. And one of the issues is, can you exclude some of that opinion? And first of all, you need to know what the legal standard is, you know, Daubert or whatever your state standard is. One approach, as we were talking about, is the materials. Did they have enough materials to give the opinion they're giving? Is there enough foundation for it? Yeah. And if they're talking about causation, know what the magic language is in that state that they have to be able to say, otherwise they don't get to say it. I have had the issue where, for example, it's a standard of care expert in a medical malpractice case, and they won't use the phrase standard of care or answer questions where you use it because they're like, that's not how medicine works and how doctors talk. I'm like, well, it's how we talk when there's a lawsuit, man. So to be clear, you can't give any opinions about what the standard of care is. That's just not how we talk. Okay, that's fine with me. Can you say something with a reasonable degree of medical certainty? I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means either, but you have to be able to say That sounds like a bad prep deal on the other side. One of the things, too, that's very helpful is a list of prior testimony. I mean, think about just getting a single deposition that this expert has given in another case, and then think about what if there are 10 or 15 or 20 transcripts. It happens fairly often, more often than you would think, where we get deposition transcripts. We try to get every one that we can get our hands on, and I've had quite a few times where they've testified exactly the opposite on key issues of what they've testified to in other cases. Or lies about how many times they've been an expert. I've had, we both had, I'm sure we all have, experts were deposing. They try to minimize the number of times they've testified or been an expert, and they say a number, 
and you have a transcript in front of you from 15 years earlier where they agreed to twice that number 15 years ago. Right. And then it always it makes it even better. I mean, right. you know, if you've been paid a million dollars, the only thing worse than that is to deny it. Right. And then it makes it, it highlights it. How do you handle it in a deposition where the expert hems and haws about how many times they've been deposed or how much money they made? Well, I think first of all, and that happens all the time, all the, every time it happens. I don't Nobody, let them off right. the hook. I'll spend four hours on it. Usually they cave. Yeah. Well, I think what you do is you use it to make them look ridiculous and use it to attack their continuing denial of it is to attack their credibility. For instance, you have an expert who owns the firm, his consulting firm. He's the owner. He has three employees. It is his main source of income. And I ask him generally, is all your income from fees and litigation? Yes. He has no idea right. how much his company that he solely right. owns makes. Yes. Did you sign off on the tax returns last year? Did you <laughs> right. review the tax returns? Do you have an accountant? And then you go through all of that, making them look completely ridiculous. And you know, Usually, anybody listening to you'll them, you end up are, getting them to agree to a bracket. Right. And then you get to the bracket and say, okay, so you're saying you have no idea I guess it could be in north of $5 million a year. Well, no, no, it's not north. Like, you know. Oh, so you know something about it. Right. And so I think it's it's great when they deny it. I love it when they deny it. And it happens almost all the time because then they make a big deal about it. They're being defensive about it. I think the best thing to do for both sides, whether you're the defense or the plaintiff, you made $800,000 last year testifying. Well, you know what? They ask you to say $800,000 and that's it and move on. Yeah. Tim, you mentioned identify the file contents. I think that's one of the most important things in an expert's deposition. I ask what's in the file, what was in the file, is there anything in the file that was in the file before that is not in there now? Did you prepare any reports, any writings, any handwritten notes? Did you make notations on any of the materials that you were given? Did you write on the documents? Did you highlight any portions of the depositions? Did you summarize the depositions? Who else in your office worked for you or worked with you on the file? What did they do? Photos, videos, anything else? Are there any publications, whether authored by you or anyone else, that you're relying on and intend to discuss with the jury? Yeah, and I think that's a real important area. I mean, it, it truly is. The other thing, I ask them very generally, what were you asked to do? And then after I ask them, what were you asked to do? I'll do exactly what you were saying earlier, Tim, and that is take me through generally 10,000 foot view what you've done in this case. And what I'll do is I'll categorize it in terms of type of activity. I'll say, okay, so you were given some stuff to look at, to review. That's one thing that you did. You reviewed some stuff. Okay. Did you do any research? Did you do any testing? Did you talk to anybody? Yeah, did you call any other right. experts? Did you exactly. call any of your colleagues? And so we go through all of those things, and sometimes they'll say examinations, inspections, things like that, and I'll identify everything they did in an overall view, and then you can kind of drill down a little bit and ask more specific questions about each of those things. I always ask scope of testimony, always in the beginning. What are you addressing? What are you not addressing? What can we cross off the list? And a lot of times... They don't know exactly what the questions are going to be, and I've seen it many times, I'm sure you guys have, where they intentionally go beyond what their original depots were to fix holes or patch things up or clarify things. And so I do that in the beginning. What can we cross off this list? So we're not going to hear anything from Mr. Expert on this. We're not going to hear anything from Mr. Expert on this. Big thing, admissions. Get admissions, not just standard of care admissions, rules. But admit facts in the case. Think about that. You're able to ask an expert, what's your understanding of what happened? What is your understanding about what happened in this surgery or in this accident? It's dynamite. Most of the cases, we, we got good facts or we, there wouldn't be cases. It wouldn't be in our office. For instance, I've got a case pending now, and it's an automotive fire case. And one of the things, you know, the elements is 
Was it foreseeable to the defendant? Was the vehicle being used in a manner reasonably anticipated by the defendant? And all of those things, to go through and get admissions from those. I separate two different things. I separate the elements of the case versus the facts of the case. And I spend time on the elements of the case, which are those things that we're just talking about, what you need to prove. The defendant manufactured the vehicle. The doctor was working at the hospital. The doctor undertook to do the surgery. The doctor completed the surgery. Those are all elements of the case that you need to prove, but also eliminate issues, factual issues in the case. They're not really not contested. And then also a big thing, too, what we mentioned earlier, what you were talking about, Tim. Or if they don't know knowledge, have yeah, sufficient knowledge of the yeah. facts of the case, and they don't have foundation to give an opinion. Absolutely. I think covering standard of care issues is a big deal so that it's not just some general dispute about, well, we messed up. No, we didn't. What are the rules? What are the rules? And we've, we've talked about Rick Friedman's book many times on these podcasts. What should be done? Right. What, what should must be, done? be done? What must be done? What shouldn't be done? What I do in med mal cases, at least, is I read the definition of the standard of care and say, so doctor, that's the standard in Missouri we use in legal cases. Can we agree if we use the phrase standard of care, we'll both mean that. And then I say, for your benefit, throughout this deposition, anytime I ask you what should or shouldn't be done, I'm asking you what's required by the standard of care. And then they forget that later in the depot when you're getting them to say what should or shouldn't be done. They're making admissions about standard of care. Yeah, and I think you need to look at whether it's doctors or drivers, commercial truck drivers, vehicle manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies. What are the rules in your industry? What should be done? What kind of testing? Is it important for a manufacturer to test its vehicles? Is it important for a doctor to take a history? Should that history be complete? Should it be comprehensive? Should it be documented in the notes, in the medical records? Are there any government regulations that cover what kind of testing you're supposed to be doing? Did you do it? Did they pass that? Right, regulations. Do they have to pass it, otherwise it's defective? Industry standards, policies and procedures of the defendant. Obviously then, opinions. Eventually you get to opinions, right? And when do you do that? You do that in the beginning, and the end? Depends on the expert. I switch up the order of when I do all this stuff depending on how savvy I think the expert is and what they're covering. So sometimes I'll throw them off right away, say, list out your opinions for me. But more often than not, I do it at the absolute end. And they may have revealed their opinions to me throughout my questions, but then right at the end I say, you have any other opinions you haven't told me about? Anything else? And the depot's been going long enough that they want to get out of there. <laughs> and a lot of times they'll go, no. <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I do the same thing, and I do mix it up a little bit. Sometimes I'll do it right in the beginning, but most often I'll go through all of the other information that we talked about. What's in your file? What have you done? What have you reviewed? And part of it is I think in certain circumstances by all of this other questioning about bias and credibility and what they've reviewed and what they haven't reviewed, I think you can sort of undermine their opinions even before they get to them. Yeah. You know, we've talked about establishing rules for liability in your case, right? So one of the other things I know we both do sometimes is establish rules that experts in litigation should follow and get their expert to agree to it and then show that they didn't do it. For example, do you agree an expert must review all materials that are made available, must consider all information that is available? must never intentionally ignore information or witness testimony. An expert witness like yourself must be fair and impartial and objective, should be nonpartisan, should not be concerned with the outcome in litigation, shouldn't take sides and develop litigation themes, shouldn't advocate for one party or another. Now, obviously, we know they all do all of these things, but 
should not be motivated by money or philosophical beliefs. And a lot of times, I know for doctors, there's expert witness guidelines out there. Engineers also. And for engineers too, you can find whatever professional organizations they are members of, they have expert witness guidelines out there that they are supposed to follow. And so I'll try to find those and print those off and establish you're a member of this organization. Have you ever seen this? And then go through the stuff in that that's good. So let me kind of give a little summary of what we've talked about today. Deposing the expert, number one, do your homework. Number two, request the expert's file beforehand. Three, explore the witness's bias. Four, explore the credibility of the witness. Five, lay a foundation for the exclusion of testimony. Six, get information about all prior litigation work. Seven, if available, get a list of the witness's prior testimony. Eight, explore compensation, the witness's fees, deposition fee, trial fee. Nine, really important, identify the witness's file content. More importantly, what weren't they given? What were they given? Did they read it and look at it? 10, what were they asked to do? When were they first contacted? What do they plan to do? Is there any additional information they would like to have? Total time spent on the case. 11, establish the scope of their testimony. What areas are they addressing? And just as important, what areas are they not addressing? 12, get admissions, elements of the case. Get admissions of facts in the case, facts that aren't disputed. What happened? How did the fire start? What was the cause of death? 14, get admissions on the standard of care. Is it a medical malpractice case? What should have been done during the surgery? Is it a crashworthiness case? Definitions of negligence, definition of the standard of care. 15, admissions on general safety rules, rules for doctors, rules for commercial truck drivers, rules for manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies. 16, Establish conduct that is unacceptable, not just what they should do, but what's unacceptable. Is it acceptable for a company to sell a product before they test it? Is it acceptable for a doctor to do a particular type of surgery that they've never done before? Screening for, a, a, say, a school bus driver, for a commercial truck driver. Should you screen? Should you do a background check? Those are just as important, sometimes more important than what they should be doing. Explore any regulations or industry standards that relate to the area of the testimony. Whoever the defendant is, the defendant's policies and procedures, you know, know what those are, where they provided to the expert. And then finally, explore the witness's opinions. What are those opinions? Make sure before that deposition is over, you understand the nature, the scope, the extent of those opinions, and most importantly, what the basis of those opinions are. So with that, that ends our session on deposing the other side's expert. We hope you enjoyed it. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Beeth. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.